are in the book of Jude for the ladies who are in here tonight, not down in the ladies' class, but are up here for uh, tonight. Let me just catch you up just very briefly on what we're studying out of the book of Jude. Jude said that he intended to write a letter to these people, and he said, I had a thought or I had a subject in mind, and the subject that I had in mind was the common salvation. That's what he calls it. And he wanted to talk basically about the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. But there was somewhat of an emergency that came up, and so he had to change gears and write about a different topic. And the emergency that he writes about has to do with some false teachers that have come in that have infiltrated the church. Uh, they have, as it were, slipped in the side door is, the, is sort of the term that he uses in the book of Jude. And so uh, he said that he needed to address that. And so what he's been doing over the past several verses that we've been studying in here is talking about those false teachers and describing them and the judgment that's coming upon them. And he's going to continue to do that in uh, verse 12, where we are tonight, where we'll spend uh, most of our time, verses 12 and 13 probably. We may not get past those two tonight, but that's where he'll spend most of his time, uh, where, uh, where we'll spend most of our time talking about these false teachers that Jude is writing about. What we have in verses 12 and 13 are about five or six, depending upon how you sort of divide those up. There's one that can be counted as, as a part of another, but uh, we're going we're gonna to simply say that there are six rather than five in our study and look at it from that perspective. But uh, what he's going to do is, is use six metaphors in regard to these teachers, describing them and, uh, and the chaos that they're causing, if you will, the problem that they're causing, the, the trouble that they themselves will be in. And we'll also, as we go through, talk about some things that, uh, that come to my mind that, that I think about as I go through and I read about these things. We started on verse 12 last Wednesday night. We talked about the first one. These are hidden reefs, reefs in your love feast. Okay? Now, the idea is, and I won't go back and deal with all that we dealt with last um, Wednesday night, but the idea is of a rock or a reef just below the surface of the water. And, and he said that these teachers are like that. Now, if they're beneath the surface of the water, what are they? Well, they're hiding, hiding out. Okay, and so they're not just coming in and, and blatantly saying, all right, let's, let's deny Christ, let's do these other things that, uh, uh, that Jude informs us that they're doing. And, and if, they, if they did that, okay, they just blatantly came out and did that, do you think they would have as much success? Or perhaps, you know, uh, they might have been uh, uh, run off, if you will, uh, from day number one. Well, they had slipped in the side door. They had gained the confidence of the people. We'll see some things tonight that helped them do that. But uh, they didn't just blatantly come in. They were, they were hidden beneath the surface. And so that made them even more dangerous. They were able to linger. They were able to be there and influence more people because they were hidden beneath the surface like a reef or a rock 
just below the surface of the water. Now, why are they dangerous? Why, why, we asked this last week, why is a reef or a rock dangerous just below the sea or, or the level of the water? Well, if you're in a boat, if you're in a ship, and you hit the reef or you hit the rock, what's that going to do to the, to the ship? Well, it's going to cause the damage to the ship, possibly even sink the ship. And so that's one of the effects that these false teachers could have had on the church there that Jude is writing about, that he's writing to. And so he talks about them being those hidden reefs. But he gives a location in which these reefs are hidden, okay? According to what he says here, a a place that they manifest themselves uh, as hidden reefs. Where is that? He says they're hidden reefs at your what? Love feast. Now, what's a love feast? Do we ever have a love feast? Uh, Is that something that the church should do? Is it something that the first century church was doing by uh, authorization or uh, something that, that they were doing that was approved by God? What was the love feast? Well, as best we can tell... These love feasts that, uh, that we're talking about here had to do with a common meal. There's nothing to do evidently with the Lord's Supper, but it evidently had reference to a meal. Go back to the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 40, or, or just look at verse 46. That'll be sufficient for us tonight. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. And while you're turning there, let me ask you the question, In the first century, in the early days of the church, how close were the the brothers and sisters in Christ, new Christians? How close were they? And I'm not talking about did one live here and the other one live across the street. I'm talking about from the standpoint of uh, of fellowship, from the standpoint of of togetherness and, and love for each other. How close were they? Well, look at verse 46. Somebody read that out loud for us. Acts 2 Verse number 46. Whoever's got it, go ahead and read it. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their people All right. In the temple they were together, but in some other place they were together as well, were they not? The force of the language carries it over. They went not only to the temple together, but they went together to one another's homes. And there they had a meal together. If you're reading that from the King James Version, uh, you'll see that the the, the force of it more, uh, of the idea of them being together in in these meals. But it seems to have been a common thing for the church in the early days to share and fellowship together in meals together. Okay? Now, when you turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, don't we find somewhat of an abuse of the Lord's Supper? What's the abuse of the Lord's Supper? Well, they had, they had brought these meals, it seems, into the church itself and substituted the Lord's Supper for a common meal. And uh, the Bible there talks about how that they were meeting together and and there was a problem because some were getting to eat, some were not. And, you know, there was jealousy and strife and all those things in regard to, the, to what was going on, in addition to the fact that they had neglected the Lord's Supper. And Paul addresses that very clearly. Uh, 
But yet again, that tells us something about the church in the first century and how they spent time, how they ate together. Sometimes they abused it, sometimes uh, they didn't. But here it seems that we have some kind of feast that they are gathering together to have. And many of the commentators and historians seem to feel and uh, history seems to indicate that what they're dealing with was a meal that had been provided by someone who uh, was of some means, had some wealth, if you will, or had had a way of paying for it. And it was provided for those who were poorer, those who did not have as much. And so they would be together in those settings and they would call them what we simply have here known as love feasts. Okay, so I want you to think about that for a minute now. If you've got somebody who is providing a meal for other folks, what are they... What are what is that going to do for the one who's providing the meal in the eyes of the ones who are simply partaking of the meal? What's that going to do? Are they not ingratiating themselves to those? Making folks look up to them and say, hey, you know, I like him because he's doing this for me. Now, Politicians today are, you know, they've started their campaigns and, and many of them have, you know, are, are trying to offer more than the other one has offered, you know, to ingratiate themselves to the voters and get themselves elected. But these are not politicians. These are folks within the body of Christ. And so... In doing this for uh, ingratiating themselves in the love feasts that are, that are mentioned here, uh, remember it's in connection with the hidden reefs, the, the rocks and the reefs that are just below the sea. They're doing it for an agenda. They're doing it for a motive that's not pure. It's not because they care for those who are needy within the congregation. It's not so that they can help them out. And Jude makes that clear with the next statement that he makes, okay? But as we look at it, they're ingratiating themselves. They're infiltrating the love feast, if you will, in order to gain a reputation from the church, from the members of the church, that they will look up to them. And if they look up to them, what else will they do? If the folks are sitting out there, quote unquote, in the pews, if they look up to these folks, will they not more easily and readily follow them, listen to them? Can't they more easily sway them away from the Lord, away from His church? No wonder they're coming in at the side door. No wonder they're just below the surface of the water. They're hidden there. And ingratiating themselves, they are coming in and they're, they're seeking to bring in these false teachings, this false doctrine, in order to, to pull people away. You know what? That doesn't happen just in the first century. A number of years ago, within the, the church, there was a, a thing called, and actually a lot of folks refer to it as the change movement. 
the change movement. And the change movement was hopefully in the eyes of many to get the Lord's church to, to become a more liberal, if you will, in their, not their giving, but, but in their doctrinal stances. To become more like the world, become more uh, like the denominational world. And, and so many people joined on to that uh, uh, change movement. And you know the way that many were led astray? It was by folks basically slipping in the side door, hiding under the, just under the edge of the water until such a time as they had a following. They'd ingratiated themselves to so many that they had a following. And lo and behold, churches would split or whole congregations would go astray from the Lord. And so Jude, in writing the book of Jude, if, if we would study these little short books sometimes and, and mind them for every nugget that we have within them, maybe we would stand a, a little more alert to what's going on, to the things that, that happen around us. Because Jude has a lot to say in just a little bit of space. He says, These are hidden reefs at your love feast. Now watch with you. As they feast with you without fear. I don't have to worry whether you're running me off or not. I, you know, you're getting to love me. And they're making themselves at home. And then he says, they are shepherds feeding themselves. Now that can either be tied to that first metaphor in verse number 12, or it can be you know, sort of viewed as a, as a separate one itself. But when he talks about them being uh, shepherding, uh, shepherds feeding themselves, uh, what is it that he's saying? Let's do a little reading from the Scriptures. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse number 2. We'll just start there. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse number 2. Okay. Again, you know the drill. Whoever gets there, read it out loud for us. Son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to, to them, Thus says the Lord to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel, who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Okay. Ezekiel is told to prophesy. He's told to prophesy to who? Now, is he talking about those folks who are out in the fields feeding the sheep? You know, literal goats and lambs and all of those? No, he's talking about the leaders of Israel when he's talking about that. But it's interesting that God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to them, and basically he condemns them, because what are they doing? They are shepherding Israel, but why are they doing it? He uses the same metaphor there, doesn't he? They are feeding themselves. What? When they're feeding themselves, when they're shepherding Israel and feeding themselves, what is it that Ezekiel is telling us that they're doing? 
Not watching after the flock, but they're doing it in such a way as to do what? Enrich themselves, whether it be in popularity or money or whatever. They're doing it just for their own sake. They're doing it just for their own gain. Now, that was in the Old Testament. Look at what he says here. These are shepherds feeding themselves. Pretty much the same language here that we have here. Look at another Old Testament passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 56 at verse number 11. Isaiah 56, verse number 11. Okay, again, talking about Israel and, or Judah. And, and he says, you know, they're just insatiable. But they're like shepherds who have done what? Turned to his own way. Let me ask you what these people here that Jude is writing about, what had they done that we've already discussed? Were they not going their own way, teaching their own thing? And so those back in the Old Testament had gone their own way. The reason for that, again in verse 16, or verse 11, each to his own gain. They're doing it for them. They're doing it for their own gain. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which is purchased with his own blood. Okay, they are to do what? Well, by the way, who is, who is Paul talking to in Acts chapter 20? Elders from Ephesus, okay, and he's talking to them. And he says, you have a job to do. What was their job? Care for the flock. Care for the flock. That's the way the English Standard translates it. Uh, yeah, King James Version says feed the flock, doesn't it? Uh, what did you read there? New King James, what was the way that it translated it? So, shepherd the church of God. And so, the idea that I wanted to bring out from that is, who were the leaders, who were the shepherds to be feeding? Now remember what Ezekiel said? The shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Brother Eddie said, should the shepherds, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? Is that not what's implied in the book of Acts chapter 20, verse 28? That the shepherds, those who would be shepherds, are to feed the sheep? That they would uh, uh, poi, uh, poi meno, okay? 
when I was a boy, I had chores to do before Daddy got home. And it started with feeding the cattle. And if I came to the supper table, uh, we didn't have supper until he got home. If I came to the supper table and I hadn't fed the cows, I didn't get to eat. <laughs> Well, I will assure you that these who don't feed the sheep that he's talking about here are feeding them the wrong feed. They're not going to get to eat in the in the final in the final feast, if you will. And just a boy, I wasn't concerned about those cows too much. I had more of my own things. You had your your belly was what was on the line right there. All right, let's keep moving on here. The shepherds who feed the sheep. The shepherds are to care for, to feed the flock. Do you realize that the word that's used here in the book of Acts, or rather Jude, verse 12, is the same word that is sometimes used to refer to the elders of the Lord's church? The shepherds of the Lord's church? I do not know when James does, I mean, Jude does not say for certain. But had these men so ingratiated themselves to the congregation that they had been placed in leadership positions? In leadership positions. Now, why were they there? They were doing what? Feeding themselves. They were there for their own gain, like those of the Old Testament shepherds that uh, were shepherds of Israel. They were there for their own gain. Now, having said that, let's read two more verses. Go first to the book of Titus, chapter 1. And somebody read verse number 7. Titus, chapter 1, verse number 7. All right. What was that last one, Tommy? Uh, who is he writing about? What's these qualifications for? Elders, shepherds, bishops, those who are the leaders of the Lord's church. But they are not to be greedy for... How was it that translated it again? Filthy or not filthy, but... what? What's the word that... Dishonest gain. So dishonest gain. All right. Keep your mind there. Hold on to that one. And look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And just look down at verse number 3. Uh, Timothy is doing the same, or Paul is doing the same thing with Timothy that he has done with Titus, or would do with Titus. But uh, look at verse number 3, giving the, the, the qualifications there. All right. One said, not greedy for gain. The other said, not a lover of money. There are two different words that are used in the original language that's there. The one greedy for gain, translated greedy for gain, means literally given to or greedy of. Uh, if you go back to the, to, the, to the Bible dictionaries, the Strong's, uh, he says filthy lucre. Or as Tommy wrote it a while ago, we don't say 
filthy lucre very much unless we're reading from the King James Version. Uh, we're talking about dishonest gain. Okay? So they're greedy for that. But, but, but think about that. They are given to or greedy for what? Dishonest money. Dishonest money. He says you can't be like that and be an elder in the Lord's church. In the uh, uh, passage that he wrote to Timothy, he says that he's not to be a lover of money. Different word literally means without covetousness. That he's not greedy. Okay, And so two different aspects that he gives there, but the idea that, that, he, that he presents in regard to the elders of the Lord's church is that, that it's not for what? Not for, not for personal gain, not for gain. Okay. Now, if these men that Jude is referring to are indeed elders, okay, they're shepherding themselves. And again, he did not uh, say for certain that they were serving in those positions, but if they had so ingratiated themselves to the church to which Jude is writing that they had risen to this level of leadership, they were doing it in violation of even the qualifications. Not to mention the false doctrines and the false teachings that they were giving. They were in violation of the, the rules that God had given, the qualifications that God had given uh, before. And so they're wrong. He said they're shepherds feeding themselves. Now, having said that, <clears throat> that brought up another question in, or, or, or thought in my mind. And uh, just wanted to briefly hit that. Is it, is it scriptural to pay elders? Is it scriptural to pay elders? I believe the answer to that is yes. If we go to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. What's double honor? Well, before we even go for the definition of the word... Let the Bible be its best interpreter. And notice verse 18. Uh, he said, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The laborer deserves his hire, his wages. And so... You know, in the context of what he's saying here that he's having to do, he's, he, he's discussing the idea of wages, of, of being paid. The word translated honor is found a number of times in the New Testament, three of which let me just call your attention to. In the book of Matthew chapter 27, at verse number 6, if you want to turn over there real quick, you'll find that Judah, uh, yeah, Judas has brought the... The, the money that they had paid him to uh, betray Jesus and cast it back in to the, to the Jewish leaders. And, and, and they, they, they have to have a discussion as to what they're going to do with it. They say in verse uh, 6, The chief priest taking the pieces of silver said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. That's our word translated honor. In the book of Jude, verse number 12. In the book of Acts, chapter 5, at verse number 2. Ananias and Sapphira had sold some property. 
And when they sold the property, you remember the story, they decided to not give it all to the church, which would have been fine. And uh, Peter makes it clear that that would have been fine, but they chose to lie about it. But notice in verse number 2, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, is the way that the English Standard translates it. That's the word that we have in the book of uh, of, uh, 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 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 5, at verse number 17. And then the last one is found in the book of Acts, chapter 7, at verse 16, last one that I'll call your attention to. I think there's about 90 or so uses of that term, that word, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 16. And they were carried back, that is, the bones of Jacob and uh, as the children of Israel were leading, leaving Egypt, they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had sought, or bought, rather, for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor of Shechem. The word sum is our word in the book of 1 Timothy chapter number 5 at verse number 17. And so, is it, is it scriptural to pay elders? Yes. But as you think about it, if they have the proper qualifications, paying them is not going to tempt them to do something that is out of the way. That's not the, that's not the key. You know, and I don't want to spend a lot more time here, but sometimes I think we would be wise to have some elders on the on the payroll. We sometimes look and we think, ah, you know, they're they're sort of in control of the money. I think we'd be wise men who could spend their days doing the work of an elder rather than simply on a weekend or you know just the the time that they have left over from their regular job. But you know, these men that we're talking about here in the book of Jude, they presented themselves as shepherds, but they were shepherds who were really only interested in themselves. And again, when I think about them, I can't keep from thinking about politicians who show up at various places right around election time, you know, maybe even to church services. You never see them again until the next election or you know, doing it for their own, own, own gain. And so when we look at it, that's number two. Number three, they are waterless clouds. Waterless clouds. You know, in a land of just a little bit of rain, each cloud was looked at with great anticipation, wanting to know if, if we're going to get just a little bit of water. Now, if you're looking at the clouds in Alabama today, you're saying, man, I sure hope that one is a waterless cloud when it comes over. You know, in some other places, I've seen some flooding back up where we used to live and that area, but you, you would hope that they would be blown away. But in that land, they were, they were looking for each cloud to bring some, some water. Can't help but think about what is said in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 43 through 45. It had been three and a half years since it had rained. Elijah had prayed that it would not rain, and it did not until he actually prayed and asked God for it to rain again. And so we know that story. But how, when 
It came time for the rain to come. How did it come? You remember Elijah tells his servant to do what? Go out and look toward the sea and see if there's anything out there. And the servant did what the first time? He said, he came back and said, I don't see anything. And so what did Elijah do? He says, go back seven more times and look. And on the seventh time when the servant of Elijah went out, what did he see? When he came back and told Elijah, I see a small dark cloud rising out of the sea. What did Elijah say? Go tell the king he better start riding because he's going to get caught in the rain. Now I'm paraphrasing that one, but you know it wasn't uh, uh, the king was not a real good king. But but as we look at it, he said it's coming. The rain is coming. We watch pretty much sometimes it comes out of the south, but we pretty much watch for the west out of the west where our, where our rain comes from. Or where our storms, or where our, you know, when the clouds start coming in, we start watching them. Those folks watch them. But he says, these folks that I'm talking about are like clouds that get you all excited because you think there's going to be rain. And what happens? It just keeps on going and doesn't deliver. It brings nothing of benefit, nothing of value to you. And so they are clouds swept along by the winds, waterless clouds. Next one, fruitless trees in late autumn. Fruitless trees, a tree that produces no fruit. That's basically what he says. Sometime go and read Luke chapter 13, 6 through 9. We've been talking about that in our Bible study on Sunday morning downstairs. But there was this fruit tree that the man, the owner of the, the tree, came to his vineyard. He did it for three years. There was no fruit on it. So he told the manager of the vineyard, he says, cut it down. He said, no, let me, let me, let me work with it one more year and, and we'll see if it bears fruit. And if it doesn't, we'll cut it down. Well, these are, these are trees without any fruit on them at all. And they, they didn't bring any benefit from the fruit. And so he said it was late autumn at the time that they should have borne uh, the, the fruit. It should have been plentiful and uh, it was time for it to be harvested. And he also says they're twice dead and they're uprooted. There was absolutely no hope of getting anything from them. Not only had they died, they had already been pushed up. There was absolutely no hope of getting any fruit off of that tree. So that's the kind of tree that they were. While the, while the young folks are coming in, ah, just let me start on 13 next week. We'll, uh, we'll, talk about, we'll talk about that next week.